0: Hi, everyone. Bob Gabelline is back to talk about his latest book, Happiness and Survival. It's a discussion of the vital role of psychotherapy in both personal happiness and the survival of our species. Before we get started, here's the inside scoop on the author. Bob Gabelline with an IQ of 140 in a Harvard education, has been a pioneering software developer and a visionary thinker. Since 1955, he has focused on addressing cultural and systemic failures channeling his exceptional intellect toward redesigning civilization. Gebelin pursued psychotherapy, dream analysis, and introspection to solve both personal and societal issues. His journey towards psychological maturity is reflected in his self-published books and original music, underscoring his commitment to profound mental and cultural transformation. Gebelin’s work embodies a deep exploration of the mind and a dedication to a meaningful change. Well, hi, Bob. Welcome back to Inside Scoop Live.
1: Hi, Jerry. It's good to talk to you.
0: Yeah, it's been a couple of years. I'm glad to have you back. Why don't you tell us about your latest book, Happiness and Survival? What's it all about and what inspired you to write it?
1: Well, what encouraged me to write it was I uh, was afraid I would die in the pandemic and I, I just wanted to write down everything I know, like at age 85 plus, And what's it all about? Well, see, the problem is, I mean, I said uh, somewhere that I'm rewriting Western civilization. I'm not really rewriting Western civilization, but the people that dominate Western civilization don't have their facts right. And I think the most uh, critical of this is that the psychological defenses of an entire culture have rejected Freud and Jung and the whole idea of psychotherapy as like depth psychology, uh, that you learn lessons wrong in your childhood, you have to relearn them right in your adulthood, and the uh, whole psychological defenses I need to define. Psychological defenses are arguments which are not quite accurate and not quite valid but are accurate and valid enough to be believed by somebody who really wants to believe them. And of course the people who have these defenses don't realize they have defenses at all, but to people who don't have these defenses, it's obvious that these are invalid arguments. Mm. People don't realize they have defenses. People don't realize they have psychological problems. We all think, well, I see we all now. I always think I'm perfect at all points in time. If I find a flaw in myself, that was one second ago that I had that flaw in myself. That's not now. I'm perfect right now. And I'm, you know, assuming that other people think that same way. So anyway, that's why I suggest, first of all, to understand what I'm talking about in this book. It's really necessary for a person to have been through psychotherapy because most of my discoveries are based on psychotherapy and where it can lead, which is beyond normal, into a realm that the culture doesn't know about, which I'll talk about later. So anyway, I suggest that everybody needs to go to a psychiatrist or a psychotherapist. That's just to find out whether you need psychotherapy. And I think some of the people that will protest that the most actually need psychotherapy, the people who don't need psychotherapy and I've met a couple and suggested that to them and, and they're fine with that. They're, they just as soon go to a therapist because they know they're okay. Hmm. So that's where I start and I'm saying that this needs to be part of the recognized education of the culture is as, as for people to be tested psychologically, uh, periodically as children and to involve psychotherapy as part of the educational process
0: so much of this book or if not all of it is based on your experience with psychotherapy and and kind of analyzing your dreams which you mentioned was different a different experience than others how was it different and how did it help you to grow as a person
1: well first of all not everybody succeeds at psychotherapy because mm-hmm. i think most people don't understand Uh, what the rules are, and uh, we were all brought up in an authoritarian system where we had experts telling us answers and so forth. And I think most people approach the therapist thinking that she, uh, 80% of the therapists are female nowadays, um, thinking that she is the authority who is going to give them all the answers. Well, actually, People have the answers in their own heads and buried, you know, mostly in the unconscious and the actually the client has to find those problem sources and the client has to solve the problem. The therapist is only a guide and I liken the therapist to a Sherpa who is sort of like, you know, viewed as a servant, not as a... Of the authority uh, the first person who climbed Mount Everest got the, the first billing, and then the Sherpa came in second. Okay. So anyway, the therapist is a guide, and my therapist keyed on my defenses. When I argued too long or argued too strenuously, he said, ah, you know, what's this problem area? And so they can sort of, guide you, but you have to find the problem, and you have to solve the problem, and I don't think people really understand that. So anyway, I was one of the few people who have reached what we call uh, therapeutic change, I think has been recognized, and like one-sixth of people who go to therapists, go through therapeutic change, really succeed at it. I went from subnormal to normal. And my psychiatrist said, you're okay, you can leave now. And I thought I was psychologically adult. And then, a couple of years later, uh, I discovered that I was so psychologically only 10 years old and that this was normal for the culture. Mm. And I think this is one of my big discoveries that I made. And because of this, I had a whole winter. I was on unemployment insurance I had a whole winter to just analyze my dreams 24-7, dreaming at night and analyzing all day. And I brought myself up from what is actually normal for the culture to what I call the psychological age of puberty, which was psychological age 14. At that point, I didn't know this was going to happen, my human nature itself changed from the selfish little boy to the compassionate and and altruistic person. I was then actually able, I hadn't really resolved my traumatic experience, but once I achieved that compassion, I was then able to forgive the man who had traumatized me at age two and a half, instead of wanting to find him and beat him up. Mm. You know, forgive this man, You know, he had his own problems. And to be able to outgrow that childish way of thinking, and I I think, you know, maybe 5% of the people uh, in our culture in the United States have achieved that naturally or through therapy. I think this is a goal for everybody to achieve for world peace. This is important. Where I absolutely a selfish, childish person to to a person with compassion for all humanity,
0: so now do you have methods in your book where the reader can kind of go through steps or is it more like um outlining your experiences and and they can glean what they need that way?
1: I'm not one of those people who sets themselves up as an authority i call this a self-help book because i'm talking about how i helped myself and and how you can help yourself and you can help yourself by going to a psychotherapist and the psychotherapist may not even tell you the methods um this is one of the defenses actually you get into an intellectual argument with the therapist on methods and that's the, avoiding the actual treatment of your own self of mm. your own b- being so my only method well, first of all is to go to a therapist to learn these disciplines of how to get around your own defenses to learn what your own defenses are and how powerful I mean I was amazed when I realized what my defenses were and how I wanted to keep being a little boy and be dependent on somebody. Fortunately, I had an instant talent as a computer programmer. I never had to worry about being dependent on anybody Mm -hmm. financially. Yeah, the, the, the methods, I would say, are in the hands of the... Step one, in the hands of the therapist until you learn the disciplines that you have to know in order to solve your problem and uncover areas of the the unconscious that you really were working against you uh, until you've uncovered them and say, aha, you know, this area of the subconscious is now in my control. So once you have those disciplines of therapy, then, now here's the important thing, uh, therapy is limited by the philosophy of the therapist. For example, my therapist did not believe in the spiritual. He he said religion is a crutch for weak minds, and so religion and spiritual were the same thing. In 1959, until the hippies came along and really discovered the spiritual. Mm-hmm. Yes, the spiritual is a real thing that's independent. Religion is just an attempt to deal with the spiritual, but the spiritual is a real thing that exists. And the, the main thing that my dreams taught me was the spiritual because I'd been limited. I mean, my psychiatrist obviously didn't believe in the spiritual So I just avoided, you know, okay, Mm -hmm. let's deal with whatever we can deal with. But my dreams immediately picked up and went right into the spiritual with me. I mean, gradually in little steps that I could understand and taught me. I mean, I literally saw the light in my dreams. I mean, yes, this light is, is love, and it's the most powerful force in the universe. So anyway, the second step the first step is therapy to learn the discipline so the second step to go beyond the philosophy of the therapist is to analyze your own dreams and again I'm not advocating this on my authority and saying a person should be doing this under the guidance or the knowledge anyway of the therapist and also the knowledge that the therapist's philosophy may not be complete the the therapist does not believe in the spiritual then you just have to break free and do it yourself.
0: Let me ask you, so as far as the spiritual, some people call it spirituality, some people call it energy, and and the energy that is love and all that can be proven by science, correct? Or has been?
1: Yes, yes. I'm here in Durham, North Carolina, this was the home of J.B. Ryan who experimented with ESP, extrasensory perception, in the 1930s, 40s, 50s, and until he died. And, and I came down here about 15 years ago to work as a volunteer for the Rine Research Center, mm-hmm. which doesn't do all that much uh, experimenting nowadays. The uh, IONS uh, Institute, of noetic sciences on the West Coast does some interesting research. The Rhine has done some interesting research on energy studies. But anyway, Mm -hmm. in the literature, one of my first jobs was cataloging books in the library, getting them on the computer. And so with that job, of course, I was reading a lot of the books that I was cataloging. And yes, I mean, there have been experiments. I mean, I I recite a whole list of names. The British Society for Psychic Research, which was founded around 1882. Mm. Mary Baker Eddy with her testimonials of people. uh, My father, in particular, was given a week to live when he was four years old. The family turned to Christian science and that's why I exist today. My father lived to be 93. He was a scientist with his, his many, many testimonials, the same as my father's. And then along came Edgar Casey, who gave uh, medical readings and life readings. This was poo-pooed. Uh, all of this stuff has been poo-pooed by an academic establishment who grabbed hold of Darwin's theory sometime in the 1880s and said we don't need a creator to explain how life came. It came by, you know, random combinations of chemicals jumping the spiritual in favor of Darwin was really immature and far fetched. Yes, there was evolution, but not without intelligent design along all along the way. So anyway, there has been proof all along uh, Carl Jung immediately saw the spiritual in in his patients' dreams the same as I did. Mm -hmm. And uh, for a friend of mine who was a scholar said, well, Freud was the person who called Jung a mystic. I mean, of course, Freud didn't believe in the spiritual. It was necessary that he not believe in the spiritual to be accepted by the academic establishment Mm. of his day. But then Jung came along and innocently discovered the spiritual, and Freud was the one who called him a mystic. I mean, a mystic being not a scientist, like the opposite of a scientist. Right. And a scientist believes in, you know, the the physical senses and logic and and a mystic throws all of that away and goes into some kind of trance, uh, which I don't even understand. Anyway, coming up, uh, uh, this Rudolf Steiner, whose books I do not understand, because all of a sudden he says, I did this. I'm going to say, wait a minute, human beings can't do that. <laughs> he never explains quite how he did it, but anyway, he's uh, Richard Kinninger, who uh, I've uh, followed a great deal, he's taught me a great deal, his uh, prophecies of doomsday were not correct but then this is where uh, he's claimed to have gotten his knowledge from the uh, brotherhoods who are secret societies of highly developed people and uh, the brotherhoods the first thing they teach you is not to believe on, on their authority but to test whatever they're saying so so anyway Richard mm. Kinney is books are a combination like this doomsday which did not happen in the year 2000 and people can toss it aside and say well th- therefore none of this is any good i mean this is bad logic you know logic says okay that part of it is no good but there are a lot of things in in these teachings which are good, and and now I'm I'm kind of getting off the track of <laughs> where I was.
0: Okay. Well, uh, we had uh, one. The first step is therapy. The two. The second step is the work with the psychiatrist and dream analysis.
1: Dream analysis. Yes. Yeah. yes. Okay. I've got to tell you the story because this this is important. I was presenting actually the self steering process, which is a key part of why dream self-analysis can work. If you're into and this is a question I asked me, well, well, when I started to interpret my own dreams, one of my interpretations of, oh, am I going to sail off into la-la land here? No, I had an interpretation that was wrong, and the dreams themselves corrected me. Hmm. And so I was at the... Uh, and and Sarah Wiseman uh, discovered me, Uh, (laughs) she found my book somewhere, uh, my first book, Re-educating Myself, and asked me, you know, if I would join the Association for the Study of Dreams and present a paper, which I did on the self-steering process. And at that conference, I discovered that a lot of the dream workers there already had discovered the self-steering process in their own dreams. Again, this is totally, totally beyond anything that's taught in at Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Stanford, any of our universities. None of them are aware of the self-steering process, mm. uh, which was another of my independent discoveries uh, You know, other people also discovered it independently. Carl Jung actually mentioned it in an obscure paper in 1931. None of us knew that until somebody, a researcher, discovered that in 2004. So anyway, I've got to tell you my story about dreams. I was at this 1991 conference, and a man sat down with me at lunch, a man in a Hawaiian shirt and asked me, have you ever considered that dreams might come from God? And I'd thought about that. Well, it turns out he was a Catholic priest. If he'd been in uniform, I would have sort of dismissed the question as part of his, you know, philosophy and all that. But because Mm -hmm. he was just an innocent-looking man in a Hawaiian shirt, (laughs) I thought about it. I thought, well, you know, dreams come from the unconscious. The unconscious means we're not conscious. We don't know where dreams come from. And the answer is yes, the dreams, not that they do come, but they could come from God, because we don't know where dreams come from. And that winter of dream analysis was the greatest wisdom I've ever experienced. Of course, it was geared just specifically for me. And that chapter, dream analysis, is in re-educating myself, i bring out a couple of the dreams, but the, that whole chapter on dream analysis is not your dreams, but it's an example okay. of the kind of theatrical productions that dreams can put on if you're really paying attention to them. You know, if there's a full, packed audience in the theater, they're going to put on a better production than if you're... I don't, Remember what I dreamed last night, you know.
0: Right, but that's what I was wondering is how do you remember your dreams in order to even analyze them?
1: Well, I gave a course at the Free University in Provincetown in 1971 and on dream analysis, and, and that's the question, you know, first question people ask okay, get a notebook, get a pencil, put it beside your bed. Ah. Do some positive, conscious thing to remind you, like, you know, when you wake up, the minute you wake up, you've got to remember this dream. I mean, if you spend, like, just going to the bathroom, you may forget about it. Right. Know? And, and <laughs> one of my students who claimed he never dreamed in the next session, he came in and said, well, it works. <laughs> you know, I remember the dream. I think a lot of people don't. Um, my former brother-in-law, who is an elite scientist, claimed that he never dreamed, but I, I think, you know, maybe that was just part of his philosophy as an elite scientist of uh, not believing in dreams and just not remembering them or being against them, you know, just mm-hmm. kind of driving them out of his mind. So anyway, that's the first step is just to... Make some conscious move, the notebook and the pencil, and just have it there. And and even if you remember only a snatch of it, if you don't get the meaning of the dream, the dream will come back with that same meaning over and over again. I'm still having dreams that uh, okay. I'm in college, and it, it's the final exam, and I, I don't even remember what the course was that I'm taking And this was (laughs) my actual college experience. Yes, I cut a lot of classes. I did manage (laughs) to graduate from Harvard, but only by a bare miracle. So anyway, I, I have these repeated dreams and they're trying to tell me something about my life and I still don't know what they mean.
0: That's so interesting though. I remember, and I don't, I'm pretty sure I haven't had this dream lately, but growing up, I used to have the same dream over and over again. And I didn't know, you know, of course what it meant or, or even to look into it. But it's, I wonder now, it's like, why did I keep having that dream? You know, interesting.
1: No, develop. Richard Kenninger talks about clairvoyance. That's the next step. Uh, I consider myself psychologically an adult, but he says, now you can go on to psychological age 28 and develop clairvoyance, which I actually started to do when I resolved my traumatic experiences of the past. I started to have these weird dreams and, you know, I'm saying, what? of what, this is really weird. And then I realized they were dreams of the future. And this was the beginning of clairvoyance is tapping into this mental dimension, which I believe, you know, I don't know this, but apparently has no time. It's not related to space the Russians conducted an experiment uh, was reported in the psychic discoveries behind the Iron Curtain. It was a 1968 book
0: hmm.
1: it said the Russians conducted an experiment where they had the mother rabbit and they put her babies on a submarine and it took them 10,000 miles away and killed them one at a time. And I mean, this is cruel oh, wow. of course, but at each, exact moment when they killed one of her babies, the mother's, of course, you know, biological signs went way, way up, you know, wow. pulse rate or whatever. Yeah. So, so this mental thing, you know, and, and it could be that mental people may be communicating with us mentally from, from like light years away. And it's just like, they're sitting right next to you, um, there is this mental dimension. This, again, is my theory of observing how mental things work. There's this, like, dogma, mantra uh, these days. The mind is nothing but the physical brain. Well, okay, that has been disproved by the reincarnation research. It's been done up the road from me at the University of Virginia, started by Ian Stevenson, who wrote a book called 20 Cases Suggestive of Reincarnation. Mm-hmm. He has since died and that research. has taken over by the Division of Perceptual Studies at the University of Virginia. They have uncovered 2,500 cases of reincarnation. Uh, mostly from people in India where people believe in reincarnation, but some even in the United States where people don't believe in reincarnation. A young child ages three to six talks about being somebody else in a past life. Now, in India, this is not considered good luck. It's not considered good luck, yes. Mm. They do believe in reincarnation, but it's not considered to be good luck or good fortune to remember your past incarnation that's sort of a no-no but these children remember and they insist that they give you the name and they give you the city and the parents take the child to that city and find out that there yes there is a person by was a person by that name and they meet the family and the child immediately shows the correct emotions with you know, his former wife or or the f- person who murdered him. Oh, wow, yeah. And it's very convincing. A lot of this, I, I just discovered, uh, they don't mention this right up front, but most of this is hearsay. The scientific researcher is not usually on the scene. The scientific researcher hears the story somewhere and visits the family and they, testify this, you know, which may have happened several years ago but there are enough cases here and and the question is, well, could they be fraudulent, could they be asking for, um, you know, trying to become famous or maybe even get money out of this and and, and they have a whole procedure Mm. just to make sure that this is honest and, you know, maybe do a little cross-examination, a little trickery So anyway, I learned about reincarnation my first day of Sunday school. See, my own conviction at age four was that I had always existed, and also I knew that I was just a little boy. And I was only four years old, but still I was convinced, or I had this conviction that I existed before that. So anyway, the first day of Sunday school, the teacher was, of course, explaining the life hereafter, and I raised my hand, and I said, where was I before? Mm. (laughs) Well, the teacher's explanation, I accepted it and nodded very politely, but it wasn't convincing to me, and I came home and asked my grandmother now. My grandmother, Gebeline, was... She was an ordinary grandmother, baked the pies, baked the bread, raised seven children. My grandmother, Caesar, was many, many things. She was a philosopher. She was an artist. I have two of her paintings here. She graduated from law school. I don't think she ever practiced. She was a member of the Theosophical Society. But anyway, she was... Very much into the spiritual, (laughs) you might call her a hippie, three generations before her time. (laughs) Anyway, I came home, my grandmother asked me, well, how was Sunday school? And I said, well, you know, where was I before? And she explained to me, well, now the Hindus believe that you're reincarnated and you live live several lives. That made much more sense to me than the Christian explanation. Mm-hmm. That explained why it's not that I it always existed. And she was also careful to explain this is a Hindu belief, not a Christian belief and if you wanna believe it, keep it to yourself. Ah. You know, we're in a Christian society here and, and just kinda of keep it secret. Yeah. So anyway, I sort of believed in reincarnation. Then Edgar Casey came along with his life readings which um Edgar Casey was convincing, and he had done 2,500 life readings, and never denied that reincarnation was a fact, although he may have gotten some of them wrong. He never denied reincarnation, even though it was against his Christian faith. So that was strong evidence in favor of reincarnation, but now this reincarnation research makes it more scientific. I mean, they're Mm. actually, like I say, it's mostly hearsay, but You know, they're protecting themselves against fraud. They're, you know, being highly suspicious of, you know, anybody who might want to do this fraudulently. And it's very convincing. And a scientific establishment has no argument. I mean, anyway, reincarnation proves that, yes, the mind does exist independently of the physical brain. The mind, you know, this memory, anyway, of this previous person does exist reincarnation, and I mentioned that right up front in the book, one of the first things I mentioned is that Mm -hmm. the reincarnation research is absolute proof that the mind is not just the physical brain.
0: Yeah. Can you share a transformative moment or insight from your personal psychotherapy experience that had a profound impact on you?
1: Well, there was no moment. I think the hippies, of course, had their moment when they took psychedelic drugs My psychiatrist said, you don't leap up to the next floor in one bound. You take it one step at a time. Mm -hmm. And and this was how the whole procedure worked, one step at a time. I had to learn what my psychological defenses were. I had to get around them. I had to make progress in that respect, which I made a lot of progress with the psychiatrist. And, And then... In the dream analysis, it started off with like combat lessons, and, and the combat lessons merged into like lessons of spiritual truth. The, the dream slowly, slowly came from the combat lessons of fighting lions and bears in the wilderness and being killed by them, and then the spiritual of, oh my God, I'm, I'm in the dark and I brushed up against the lion in the dark. And I remembered a wonderful lady who came to visit me and had to go past <coughs> three barking huge dogs lunging at their chains to get to my basement apartment. And she she just, oh, you poor things all chained up and they kind of, you know, went back and, and <laughs> lay down again, you know. And, and okay, so in this dream of where I brushed against this line in the dark I said, Oh, you poor thing all alone in the dark and immediately the sun came out and everything was I mean, this all the stuff is leading me to the spiritual light means love and then of course the Yeah the grand the, the huge light which was of course I I called it God but no, I don't wanna take all the Christian things of God and put it into that one dream. This is an aspect of what the supreme being is. It's love. And that's all but there is this supreme being and there is the supreme power, which is love. But no, I didn't have any peak experience. It was one little step at a time. Okay. Um,
0: How do you envision psychotherapy evolving in the future? And what role do you see it playing in society or hope to see?
1: Okay. Uh, In my book, I'm saying it needs to be incorporated. It needs to be recognized as a necessary part of our education. Some people do not need it at all. I know this young woman. I've known her. She's the granddaughter of my partner, uh, and (laughs) she's just one of these people who, who's been psychologically mature ever since she was like 10 years old. <laughs> and, and the, There are people in this world who, you know, do not need it at all, but everybody first needs to go to a therapist to find out whether they do need it. And, Cause we don't know this. Okay. So that should be incorporated into our official education system mm. and children who, are identified, I mean, you're growing at a normal, at first they should be tests of psychological maturity, which can be devised, which haven't been devised, which can be built on, the, I mean, you take their their umpteen, I don't know how many psychological tests there are, I was given one when I took my first job, and uh, asking you a lot of questions about your opinions and beliefs, and, and
0: mm-hmm.
1: the questions in these tests can be ranked as to what a psychological age you're expected to answer one way or another. Tests can be devised of psychological maturity, and those tests should be applied in children who, who need that should be helped at whatever age it looks like they need it, the first thing, you know, who who needs, okay, heads of state, police officers, right away. Mm, mm-hmm. um, anybody enforcing the law, I mean, we've had all these cases of, you know, racial bullying, and, and yes, you need to identify those people on your, get them out of your police department. You need to pay, I don't know, New York policemen get paid an enormous amount of money, but they have a, really tough job and, mm-hmm. and you know they uh, and i'm sure they they're better qualified than small town policemen but suddenly i realized no it's the therapists who need psychotherapy ah. first and it used to be a requirement back in the days of psychoanalysis the therapist the psychiatrists in those days md psychiatrists practiced psychoanalysis, mm-hmm. because Freud was an MD psychiatrist and so forth, and the profession is not doing its job. Mm-hmm. And my psychiatrist was very, very good, and he had a reputation for success. Uh, also, he was head of the New York chapter of the American Psychiatric Association. I mean, he was well-liked among his colleagues. He's a uh, great therapist, but he still had his limitation, as did Freud, in that he didn't believe in the spiritual. So, anyway, yes, I envision that the system, we haven't even discussed this the system, the academic people who have rejected Freud and Jung because their evidence was not physical. And this is another discovery of mine the mental senses. We all, all. Normal people, I say normal because there may be people who don't have these senses, but most of us have uh, the ability to perceive our thoughts, our emotions, our memories, and our dreams. These are mental senses that we have. This has nothing to do with psychic abilities or anything beyond that. It's just ordinary, everyday, remembering memories, remembering a dream. Okay. Okay, so we dream and we experience the dream, and then when we wake up, remember it. And, and we're exercising mental senses and Freudian. Their discoveries were based on the mental senses. So anyway, the academic culture is totally bogged down in physical senses and physical science and physical beliefs of, of rejecting the spiritual in favor of a totally mm-hmm. physical universe, which is wrong and I'm telling that establishment who are the teachers who give the grades that they are the ones who are wrong, and and I'm just a person with no status, but I, I just want to get this one word in twice, because this is very important. I did have an IQ of 140 in 1941. That meant in 1941 that I was four standard deviations above the norm. I was an exceptional person. It's been a experience in my life now I have taken that and I have developed that by opening up through psychotherapy and dream analysis I have been I have opened up parts of my mind which not all people have opened up right this is how I can see through the academic cells when they're still dealing with with physical conscious physical logical. Well, logical arguments which aren't really accurate logically. I was a computer programmer for 20 years. I was accurate logically. I know what that means. A lot of these arguments, like I started off with this whole idea of the census, and anybody who doesn't have these defenses can see through them. Anyway, I've opened up portions of my mind that these people don't have. And I'm hoping to reach what I call the intelligent reading public, and I'm hoping to reach people. There are other people who have succeeded at psychotherapy, and and I've tried to contact as many of them as I know. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I've developed this part by opening up through psychotherapy. It isn't an intellectual education. It isn't a Harvard degree at all. It's a whole other... I won't call it dimension, but a whole other aspect of opening up more of my mind, much more than I had in 1941. You know, I opened up a greater percentage of it, and this is what you get.
0: So everyone has access to this, and the first step would be psychotherapy.
1: Yes. Okay.
0: Now, this has been your life's work, and you're not done yet. What is your next step?
1: ideas are still coming like the idea that therapists should be the first people to go through therapy I mean that I didn't say in in happiness and survival I have had a lot of ideas I'm actually thinking oh you know I've, I've got I've got another book I'm not saying don't buy happiness and survival I'm saying do buy that because that's what I've intended at least to be the culmination of my life but no I have this other book in my mind called a system that works I'm 89 years old and I'm not getting recognition for my work life is still good for me
0: yeah
1: I'm not suffering a life of loneliness I'm you know I'm dealing right here I'm publicizing this book I'm I have two good women in my life who are, uh, are giving me support and one of them is Sarah Swati, is Shia, who is already, her audio book of Dirty Science is already on Amazon, and she's doing all my other three books now. But anyway, Wonderful. I have, I have uh, one more book I'm actually starting to work on, and I'm not through yet, and my mind is not, my body is not in great shape at 89 and a half, but uh, my mind is still working.
0: Yeah. That's awesome. Well, thank you, Bob, for joining us. It's been good to catch up with you again, and I'm glad to see that you're, you've still got more books in you. At least one more, right?
1: Well, yeah, one more, and then, and then i actually started on my memoirs. But I've
0: oh, wonderful! That's
1: all this other work that's more. I've actually written like 130 pages handwritten. Of my memoirs, and actually the more I work on it, the more stuff I remember. Like most people can't remember anything yeah. from age 90, but I'm, I'm remembering all these things from my childhood and saying, you know, this is going to be a thousand pages. I don't know whether I'm going to bore people with all the, <laughs> you know, oh my goodness. the childhood memories. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, I'm having to cut down the stream of consciousness that's flowing in. So anyway, no, I have actually two more books on my schedule.
0: Well, thank you. Thank you for coming on the show again and for updating us on what you've been up to. And thank you. Thank you. Thank you for this publicity. Thank you for joining me today for my interview with Bob Gabeline, author of Happiness and Survival. You can find Happiness and Survival at most online resources. And be sure and check out our other interviews at InsideScoopLive.com.